welcome to Warped Zone, a podcast on sci-fi, philosophy, religion, politics, gaming, and anything else. Taboo! Taboo. Hey, we're in the same space together. Yay! I'm Ben Benassik. I'm Tara Smith, and we are sitting on the floor of (laughs) Think Space. Think Space, yes. Which we have been before, a few weeks ago. Yeah, we spoke about something. Something, yes. And we are... um, It's a bit warm again. So hot in here. Yeah, it is. It's really bad. Yep. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah, we have been apart for two weeks mm. on a Tuesday. Mm. <laughs> Sounded a lot more dramatic than yes, that. Yes, yeah, it does. <laughs> we've been Because um, you've had busy, busy Tuesdays <laughs> and have. we've not been able to meet up. I can't up. even remember what I was doing. You're doing those, like, nine-hour days doing fe- sacred feast lectures, right? That's right, yeah. That and was making Vassalopita. Mm, Vassalopita was fun. How did you like the Vassalopita It was good. Week? Yeah. I like it. Yeah, Tom went and had some Vassalopita experience as yeah. well. Yeah. He said he hung out with you for a little while there. He did, yeah. Yep. Made him a feature of the lecture. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, yes. So, what have you been doing? Um, oh, God. It's hard to think back on a week. Yeah. I have to go back to my calendar. Um, <laughs> I cleaned a bit on Sunday. Oh, and we had the Tetris Championships, which we'll yeah, talk about later. Uh, I went to the book fair, scored a lot of books. Oh, I got about 15 yeah. books. I forgot that that existed. You told me this morning, so yeah. I have to go back to the book. Yeah, we can go after this. We can quickly That'd check it out if we've got yeah. time. Um, but, yeah, they basically it's on for two more days, so if you haven't come, check it out because they're doing, like, a dollar books, and you can get a whole box and fill it up with as many books as you can, I think, mm. for, like, $10. This is Sydney Uni's book fair. Yeah, yes. very good. So In we went, the Great Hall. That's right. So we went there, and what else did we do? Um, Friday, nothing exciting. Nothing so yeah, pretty much pretty boring week by the looks of it. Looking back at my calendar, yeah. <laughs> that's my life. Um, Sorry. I'm just looking at the calendar and it says, "Don't chop the vasilopita, Daddy." Tom's put that in the calendar for the vasilopita on Tuesday. Don't chop. The <laughs> yeah. Anyway, nothing really exciting to report. Okay. Uh, I have been really busy. Um, we did our applications, though. You did that. So you did a tutor application. Yeah, I don't think everyone wants to hear about my tutor application. Oh, right. It was okay. boring to yeah. do, and I think to recount would be equally as boring. Okay, all right. <laughs> I did a teaching one. Also, oh, it was very stressful. Like, we submitted forms on the yes. internet, and the forms ended up at the place where they were meant to go to the recipient blank, which is annoying. Yeah. Mm. So we had to, we kind of panically had to try and redo our forms yeah. over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, and that was unhelpful for me because I had the Tetris Championship this weekend. Um, so last year I came second through a matter of luck and um, good placement in the standings. Yes. Uh, this year I was aiming to get in the top half. Um, so for the qualifiers, I ended up getting tenth out of um, twenty registered players for the competition. The next day it was twenty-four players, though. So I was quite. I was quite happy with that, yeah? Um, and then uh, that night, on the Saturday night, I went home and I had to write my application because I realised on Sunday night I'm going to pretty much be too tired to write it for Sunday morning, that for Sunday night for submission. So I stayed up um, and wrote my application, finished it off um, on the Saturday, not practising. Uh, and then Sunday, um, because I was too tired and exhausted, and Isaiah had fever that night and then also the shop had an issue with one of my staff leaving the door open but that's <laughs> anyway that, that happens with shops um that specifically doesn't happen normally but it has happened to me um so i did not practice much at all um and on sunday i scrubbed out which is not good yeah um, it wasn't your best round i was terrible 
Awful, yeah. awful. I was amazed how... You even had your pod, your philosophy podcast playing. Yeah, I listened to Sartre, I think, or I listened yeah. to something that... Uh, I should have been listening to Heidegger or something, but... Um, you know, something that you concentrate on instead of doing the game, I find, is <laughs> yeah. good for me. Anyway, um, yeah, I bummed out. Um, so the, ne- the day before, I was managing consistently 180,000, no matter what, um, and in the qualifiers... On the same starting levels, I could not get 10,000. Yeah, I think it's, it's like the pressure times of playing in front of other people as well. I didn't care about that. Because no, even in the warm-up, the warm-up that morning before you got there, better. I could not get over 20,000. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so you're just having a it's shit just terrible. Day. Yeah, terrible, terrible. So yeah. Next year? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, you're like, I'm not going to go. No, no, I'll still go. You're going to protest. But no, I know. I'm, I'm terrible. Yeah, we well, you know I didn't even bother entering. As soon as, like, you know who's going to be playing, and I know both um, Alex and... Yeah. Uh, and hang on a second. We'll pause that for a second. Yeah. We're being interrupted. Yeah. Hey, sorry. Um, it seems like the only thing I can help you with is one of our fans, but I don't know how... No, no. That's fine. No, it's fine. That's okay. We'll just Thank you. Back. Okay, no worries. All right. Thanks. I think we'll leave that in. <laughs> Demonstrates how hot it is that, yeah, yeah we've been offered a fan, but we are staying in the Yeah, because it's actually really cold outside, so it shouldn't be yeah. as hot. But because it's all soundproofed and they forgot maybe to ventilate the room probably. No, it's too fast. <laughs> I didn't see the vent. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, it's all right. That's okay. We'll continue. Um, so, yeah, I didn't bother ending because I knew um, who's the other... Um, Alana. Alana. They're both really freaking good. Alana's and amazing. I just couldn't be bothered. Um, so I didn't enter. I didn't want to pay 20 bucks to mm-hmm. just go to just lose it. No, I and I hadn't been practicing because we had the whole. It was like, um, what do you call that when you try really hard for something and then it wasn't on? It was a big letdown. I think that it was closed for everybody. Not that it was anybody's fault, but you know how the competition oh, got cancelled. Yeah, yeah so I've been practicing all week. I've been getting into it, and then to then be told a month later to try and have that level of energy again, I just couldn't be bothered. So, mm. um, I powered through. You did, Ben Campbell. If you're listening from 1989. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Ben. <laughs> I care about your competitions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But seeing Alex and Lana face off again, because they first uh, faced off yeah. each other at my store um, yeah. in the makeup competition. Um, and they versed each other in the first last no, year, right? Oh, no, they, they didn't. didn't. No, no. Just oh, because of the weird... Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was um, at my store and then also uh, in this competition. Um I could watch their matches like all day, every day. It's <laughs> so good because they have both very different yeah. styles. Um, Lana's pieces almost float. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't slam down or anything, but Alex is just methodical and yeah. like a machine. And he won. He did. Congratulations. He, did. he won. Yeah, so congratulations. And yes, it was fun. Um, but enough of the niceties. Um, yeah. Do you want to get into Camus? All right, we're going to get into Camus. And I think, have you got, just, have we got intro or outro stuff? No, nah, I'll find something. We okay. might play a Montaigne song because we're going to mention. Oh yeah, Montaigne. can we play my Myth of Sisyphus song at the yes, end? Yes, we'll do. Uh, we'll play that now. Okay. And sure. then we'll close with Montaigne. So this is uh, Andrew Bird's uh, Sisyphus. Did he jump or did he fall as he gazed into the morning mist? Did he raise both fists and say to hell with this jest?
hope you enjoyed that. I'm a big fan of Andrew Bird. He's a great musician. Um, and I thought that song was kind of fitting. Mm. And um, now we're going to go to Camus. And before Ben does like a little intro, I should just start with a caveat that I did try and read Myth of Sisyphus. I got about halfway through and I just found it really hard to read. I am not a philosophy buff. This stuff's pretty new to me. I easily feel intimidated by philosophy Mm -hmm. because I I have a lot of um, experience of the kind of, um, uh, what do you call it? ivory tower kind of philosophy i tried to do philosophy at sydney university and basically hated it i found everyone really pre- pre- uh, pretentious and arrogant and i thought this philosophy shit is not for me mm-hmm. but i ben is slowly pulling me out of my anti-philosophy kind of bent and i'm not saying camus necessarily like that but for someone that just doesn't read this sort of stuff all the time i did find it really difficult so what i did is i tried to um engage with Camus in other ways by reading some sort of um, hearing podcasts, YouTube video summaries, and then researching some of the philosophers that exist before and after and and existential movement more yep. broadly, because that was the, but easier for me than trying to just power through. Yeah, yeah. well, you have to drop them in a top at time and place, and that's what I do with my lectures that I, I teach at Newcastle. I yep. don't just talk about a single person and what they engage with. Um, I think time, place, um, experience and their contemporaries matters for these sort of things. Uh, and it's it's really important to actually do yeah. that. Um, precursor though, so Myth of Sisyphus, it does mention suicide, both philosophical and um, actual suicide. Uh, if this raises any issues for you at all, uh, Lifeline is available to chat uh, on 131114. Um yeah, definitely. And we do yeah. try and be, like, it's important to be serious about um, suicide because, I mean, I yeah. think everybody's contemplated it probably in fleeting, but then, you know, there's other times when yeah. people uh, take it a bit more seriously. Yeah, and yeah. If that's, uh, especially Are You OK Day was just, what, a week ago? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's Thank You Day today at Sydney Uni. I don't know what that means. Thank, I think it's thank you. Sponsors. Sponsors? I got I that impression. I have no <laughs> idea what they're doing. Anyway, but um, look, Myth of Sisyphus, it, um, I'm not going to put a caveat warning on the text or anything for this um, podcast because it's it's not really about that. Um, he reacts to the element of, of suicide, which we can talk about. Yeah. But... Um, it's not a uh, trigger warning um, like we've had in the past for talking about some taboo stuff. Um, yeah, no, I didn't yeah. find... I mean, the, from the half that I read, I didn't really see him mention no, suicide uh, once. No, no, no. Not that like kind of suicide. It's, it's different. And, and I think he actually gives a quite a good nuanced description about the choices that we make in yeah. life. Um, but I thought it'd be, it'd be useful to mention that. Right. Dropping Camus into a time and place. Did you want to say anything prior... Uh, no, I think you can just give him uh, an intro of sort of the who, yeah. what, when, how, and then I'll go into, we can talk more about the people around him as well later. Sure, sure. Okay, so I might leave um, Sartre's, that's uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's um, relationship with him to, to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but then let's just focus on Camus himself. Um, so he was born in Algiers. Um, he was referred to as a Pete Noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete Noir is a Blackfoot um, by French people. So what happened uh, when Algeria, after the war, and uh, just prior to the war with Algeria's overturn of government um, and the cessation of French um, well, it was French colonies, really, um, you had a lot of those people actually returning to France. They, if you spoke French, 
and you're born in one of those colonies, you're considered French, according to the government. The problem was that there was a lot of racism going around, um, and that racism was extended to white people who lived in um, African nations, um, or, you know, black-dominated nations. And one of those is Algeria, and that's why, um, yeah, Camus is actually referred to as a Pete Noir, uh, which is a Blackfoot. Mm -hmm. um, his father dies at the age of one. He's a working-class person. You mean his father dies when he's one? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, when he is at the age of one, yes. Uh, and uh, he meets Sartre, which we can get on Oh, yeah, to. and so he, his mother is a cleaning lady as well. Yeah, and yeah. they move in, I think, into a an arts house, house yes. or, or an apartment, yeah. like a three-bedroom apartment with, like, yeah. six family members. And his grandmother, I, I read, was quite abusive, physically yeah, abusive. Yeah, becomes the dominating factor there. Yeah, so. and I think he, he... I can't remember the exact quote, but he says something like, my upbringing was... Like um, pretty like horrific. I think he had um, he was beat a little bit as well, physically yeah, abused, and really a, hungry as well. Yeah, and yeah. Poor. But there's a juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition with um, uh, Camus in his family home and how he has these personal relationships, and then the lightness of Algeria, which he talks about, you know, being mm. at the beach all the time. And that's what the... Is the plague written set in Algeria? Sort of like a... Uh, yeah, yeah. So but it's kind of like his yeah. love for the... Yeah, yeah, he loves it. And it's funny, because uh, today is a win windy, cold day in Sydney, mm -hmm. um, outside. And I always connect reading Camus to that sort of... Um, weather, you know, there's certain books where you read, yeah, and you're like, yeah, you can sort of think kind of. about it, yeah, brooding. But really, he's he has this lightness. Mm. Um, he loves sunshine. Didn't he write a little poem about yeah, sun? Yeah, he enjoy, <laughs> yeah, yeah he loves story. the beach. Yeah, um, he enjoyed um, sport. That was all stopped though when he was 17. He um, contracted tuberculosis. Yeah, um, or caught. I don't know what the term is. I'm not a medical sure. person. Anyway, he got TB. Um, he stops doing sport as much as he could. Uh, so he's starting university at that time and he was playing football and everything seemed to be going well and it looked like he was going to go into academia mm -hmm. and then he gets TB and it stops all of that. Yeah. Um, so because of that, he has to do lots of different odd jobs around um, and <laughs> one of them, he, he sells car parts. Thank you, car salesman. Yeah. Um, Wasn't he studying philosophy or did he come back and do that later? I thought he studied philosophy at university. Before and after. Oh, yeah. okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so he just had like a, a, um, a break period, between them. Yeah, cause yeah. He was so there's this period of, of yep. sickness and struggles to do that sort of stuff because there's this um, pausing of his um, possibility of, of studying academia. Anyway, so um, the war starts. Uh, he is in the Communist Party prior and he's putting on different plays. Um, he's a playwright. Uh, he's also a prolific author and he is writing poetry. Um, his works um, look like fiction works only, but they're also philosophical works. And this is one of the, the things of Camus that he moves around with what we can define him as. Like he's not he doesn't like being called a philosopher. He doesn't mm. like being called an existentialist. Um, or an atheist. Or an atheist, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, he struggles with these things, but he's, he's labelled with. Mm. Um, he has a large debate late uh, with Sartre um, in relation to politics, and uh, I think we get into that in a moment. Um, uh, he, but tragically, he died at the age of 46 in a car accident um, which also killed his publisher, Michel um, uh, Gallimard, I think is, is how you say it. 
Um, and in the car wreckage, they found 100 pages of mm. um, what was meant to be his best work. Yeah, and a train ticket because he had an, an option. Unused, <laughs> unused train yeah. ticket, yeah. Because so he had an option, I think, to get the train with his family or right. to drive in uh, with his publisher. Yeah, decides to go with Mich- Michel or Michelle. Yeah. Michael. Um, Gallimard. And the un- unpublished work is First Man. It was going to feature his early life, um, his life in Algiers, and he thought that that was going to be his best work ever. Yeah. Uh, unfinished to the day. But he is, um, because of the amount of writing, writing he did and how uh, well the prose was, um, and how accepted he was with mm-hmm. intellectual society in Europe, he has a lasting tradition. I yeah, think, and he also won Asian. the Nobel Book Prize, um, and he was the second youngest uh, recipient of the award. Mm-hmm. And he, when he uh, accepted it, he was really humble about it and said that during this time, you know, wartime, there's so many people writing more important things and there's so many people that are older, and I feel like I'm, uh, my best work is still ahead of me. And he yeah. had this real impression that he was going to go on to do amazing things, and it's such a shame that... I think a year later, or you know, he died so young before he could fulfil all those things. Because yeah. he died, I think, a couple of years after the award. He, he received the award. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested to hear from you. Uh, so that's that's about him as a person, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to hear from you where you want to drop him um, in the philosophical train. Yeah. Um, and then if any questions come out about that. Mm-hmm. And then we can maybe talk about the relationship he had with Sartre. And then maybe Myth of Sisyphus. And then we'll do Myth of Sisyphus yeah. later. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So I try to kind of take a step back and try and um, explore existentialism as a movement mm. more broadly. And so I sort of started with a couple of key figures and tried to do a bit of a timeline of sort of who's inspiring who. And, and it gets a little bit difficult because, you know, everybody's sort of feeding off aspects of each other and kind of debating. And that's why I really struggled with Myth of Sisyphus is that Mm. I've told you this before but I'll say it again but I felt like I was kind of halfway in a conversation that I didn't know kind of what was happening and and because Camus was writing that as a bit of a response not just to try and put himself on the map and compete with the bourgeois and the kind of more aristocratic kind of philosophers that he was competing against because he wasn't um, high class he wasn't born into that kind of role Um, so he, he was really trying to go try and say oh and it's almost like in a way, name dropping. Like I know, I've read Heidegger, I've read Kierkegaard, I know, yeah. and I, and etc. And which you have to do as a philosopher anyway. But I, as someone reading it that had not much experience in those, I had to kind of take a step back and try and figure out his context and who he's kind of bouncing off. Mm. And so, Kierkegaard, I, I believe, is sort of often where people begin the kind of story. So he was 1813 to 1855, and he's kind of considered the father of existentialism. And he kind of broke it up between the infinite and the finite, um, meaning your possibility of what can happen and the necessity. So somebody that's living with the possibility um, is sort of endless. They're kind of not really living properly either. So that's kind of like a a whim. Every time something comes up, you might do that. So I kind of think of someone like a traveller that just perpetually travels, that any time an opportunity comes, they take it. They're not really grounded. And then the opposite's necessity, where you're like a cog in the machine, kind of just going through the motions. And for Kierkegaard, he thought neither was the way to go. You had to try and find a balance. And this is sort of where I think people tried to, as trying to build from, it's sort of how you exist with this problem of finding a balance between being kind of free and being kind of um, t- too tied down. Yeah. And and this is this is kind of what people build over. And I'm not going to give a full description of each because it would just take too long. Let's go back a step. So Kierkegaard is reacting here 300 years later to, or 200 years later, to Descartes. Um, yeah. And this is the Cogito. So 
uh, Rene Descartes, for the listeners that don't know, uh, is uh, he, he does a couple of thought experiments, which are really interesting. Um, and you like the beeswax one. We spoke yep. about this before. So Descartes talking about being in a room and, you know, I can feel the warmth of the fire. Mm. Oh, but he's reacting. You should probably say he's reacting from Aristotle, right? Yeah. And the idea yeah. that everything can be experienced and reason. Yeah, and yeah. So there is existence of objects in the world those objects have essences, so the table has an essence of being a table, or the acorn has a, that was a good example, um, the acorn has a um, essence of being an acorn tree, and there's a potentiality of moving towards that, okay? So you can yep. have movement of objects, but objects all have their own essence. Yep. Now, Descartes says, well, maybe, because there's, there's two aspects to Descartes' thoughts. One is that my senses can fool me. Um, I can feel warmth, from the fire, but how do I know that's true? Because I could have a fever, think that I'm cold or warm, and be the opposite. Um, my eyesight can can prove me wrong. Uh, my tastes, they I might taste something that tastes good, but it can actually make me really sick. Uh, so therefore, I can't trust my senses. Um, and then he gives the example of the, the wax ball. So I have a wax ball, it has a certain form, um, I can taste it, it tastes like a certain thing, but if I put that form, that body, into the fire, it melts, it gives off a certain smell, it changes, but it's still the same wax ball, um, beeswax ball. So uh, he then says, well, what if there's a mischievous devil that's actually telling me all of these things? And what if there's someone sitting over my shoulder and says, no, you know, you're not seeing the fire, or you're seeing a fire, but the fire's not really there. What if you're akin to being plugged into the matrix? What if we don't know anything about our own existence? So then Descartes does something thinking, well, I think that I'm real. I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And it's that moment of the kigito, kigito ergosum, I think, therefore I am, is the moment which all of these philosophers actually are talking about existentialism you know it what is our existence yeah. beyond the aspect of objects and how do we ascertain what is going on with those objects yeah definitely and they're all often they all of them are really reacting off the christian idea also of being um predestined or the idea predetermination, that predetermination yeah. so that yeah. there is a, a path for you to lead and that that you you know it's god's path and god has mm. a plan for you but if you take god away from the equation then more what are we, what's our goal how do yes. we know that we're fulfilling a good life how who are we as individuals well, why yeah, are we here yeah but even for a christian that, that believes in free will and free yeah. expression how do we make those decisions and what yeah. basis do we do those so uh who have you got up next so i won't talk about Dostoevsky, yes. but i think he was sort of involved mm. and then um nietzsche and heidegger as well as That's, being yeah kind of you know and we won't spend we could spend a whole podcast on both yeah we'll i'd like to actually revisit nietzsche yeah um in future uh but I think Heidegger is is useful, which flows onto um, Sartre. Sartre, uh, yeah. yeah, then flows on to Sartre. So Literary. why don't you give a little okay. bit about Heidegger? Yeah, so Heidegger uh, was born in Germany, born in 1889, died in 1976, and his major work was Being in Time. Mm. Um, and <laughs> what? As a side note, yes. what an arrogant title. <laughs> like, really, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book about philosophy of, you know, existence in the world, what, oh, and I'm going to write it about everything. Being and time. You can't have anything else, really. Yeah, it's That's true. all of time and all of being. It's, yeah. And this is what Heidegger 
uh, his big novel is about. And he does it quite successfully. Yeah, and um, so I think people, and I found it, uh, people get really, what's the word I'm looking for, intimidated because Heidegger is really yeah. difficult to read. There's a lot of big German words that are like, you know, mm. 20, 30 characters long and, yeah. and he uses a lot of terms. And well, and the terms are capitalised and then smaller letters and yeah. then bolded. And, yeah. yeah, so I think people find it difficult, not just because of that, but also his ties with um, Nazi Germany, which we won't spend too much time going into because I think that's another big conversation mm. as well. But my understanding is that um, he that he's interested in if there's no fixed essence. So he's saying, well, if if we kind of don't take Aristotle's idea of the essence being true, mm. um, and human beings are sort of unique, uh, he sort of sort of saw philosophy as creating kind of other big systems to replace that, um, and that he doesn't. Uh, I don't fully understand Heidegger actually. I, I what I kind of got from just listening to sort of his life is that he kind of went and lived in, he kind of really liked the simple life and thought that he's quite anti-technology and thought the kind of um, farming lifestyle, that kind of uh, back to basics kind of yes thing was no. important. So yeah. mod, uh, modern technology is what he terms it as. So let's uh, drop Heidegger into this, this train yeah. of thought. Um, to exist in the world, to be in the world, is Dasein, being in and being with the world. That's what yep. Dasein actually means. So it's a German term and it means literally being in the world. Um, you cannot separate the world and human beings or beings in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not term things as consciousness and unconsciousness because that denotes a separation between the two. You should not separate your consciousness with being in the world. Yep. Now, there are certain things which enable you to do things in the world um, and this is one of the big things that he actually covers as part of um, uh, the existence of the world and then also he's, he's touching on uh, Nietzsche a little bit here as well. So he sees that there is this care structure of us as humans, there's the facticities, um, the fallenness and the existentiality of why or how we make choices in the world and how we exist. So the facticities are, um, I um, I am not in the world today in Australia living as a 36? <laughs> I don't know how old you are. I don't know. Anyway, 36 year old man. Um, I think 37 maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to be a yak keeper. Yeah. I could be a YouTuber, but I won't be a yak keeper, okay? Because I'm born in this time and place, and that is the facts about me. I am male. We well, uh, could be a yak keeper if you wanted to. You the, could the, go I, to England it, and it, keep the yaks. Is there yaks in England? I don't know if there's... No, there's not yet. No. Where are the yaks? America? Are they like in a... Where are yaks? Mongolia. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Could, could go to Mongolia and keep yaks. Mm. <laughs> England. Anyway. <laughs> I'm thinking of like the other big ox bison oh, things. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. America. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So it, it is unlikely... Um, either of us are going to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I cannot bear a child. I yes. am not a woman. Uh, you know, I yeah. am a male. So there's all of these facts about my existence. Now, based upon all those facts, there is a fallenness. I fall into tasks or I fall into likes and dislikes based upon my facticities. All right. I am born in the 21st century. I grew up in the 90s. I enjoy video games because of that, because they were really popular at the time. Unlikely that they were doing the time, uh, you know, in the 60s if I grew up, I would be less likely to like those sort of things. Mm -hmm. I'd probably like literature more or something like that. So, 
there's a fallenness, um, and we might fall towards certain things. Uh, and then there's the existentiality, and that is the ability for the possibilities to be chosen by the individual. Yep. Now, what um, old mate Heidegger critiques is, he goes back to Aristotle in this way, and said that there's these forms that exist in the world. So you've got the four causes, according to Aristotle, material, formal, efficient, and final forms. Now, thinkers at the time were thinking, well, to create the cup, someone has designed it, you know, on the basis of its material, its formal, efficiency, and final. It might not have an essence, because we don't believe in the essences of things, but things are still being created in this way. Heidegger turns to that and says, well, yeah, you can have these objects that are created in a certain way, but without someone being thirsty and wanting the coffee, then the cup would not have come into existence. So the final form element of this, this object um, has been created on the basis of the understanding of its final nature and its material nature, as well as its efficiency nature. So it's the potentialities here that come into play. Now, why that actually matters is modern technology for Heidegger doesn't do that. Modern technology looks at all objects as means to potential ends or as, as its most um, useful um, maximum, maximum capacity. So I'll look at a forest and think about how many matchsticks I can make out of that forest. Rather than dwelling in the forest as a Dasein, as a being, and being happy with that existence with a small cottage and using the tools at my disposal to work with nature. So modern technology, in that regard in the farming instance, does not destroy the earth, it works with the earth. It's being with the world. Yeah, and that's what Heidegger, I thought like, and he feels like when you're in nature, you're walking in nature Mm. and all this sort of stuff like is really important in in kind of realizing who you are and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but you can be Dasein, so you can, exist and be in modern society as well. Mm. So it's sort but of anti-greed, like sort of rape and pillaging. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should be more accepting of where our space is. Now, in saying all of this, I know we don't want to cover it, but he is a fascist, he is a Nazi, yeah. was anti-Semitic. Uh, we know that through his black books over the last 10 years, so yeah. I'm aware of all of those things, absolutely. But he's writing these things and it's quite useful. Now, being in time, he writes that, and then we enter into the world Sartre. Yep. And, and he writes being in nothingness. Being in nothingness, yes. yeah, because <laughs> being in time was taken. So, uh, um. so he said, he flips the narrative of Dasein being, but you can not be in the world. So you have being and not being. What's the difference? Well, not being, you're not there. You're dead. Mm. <laughs> the choices that we make. So, oh, right. So if you you mean like being present maybe or not yeah, being present. nothingness, making the choice. Yeah. Um, and so he, so Sartre, um, he's born 1905 to 1980. Um, it's pronounced, uh, uh, yeah, you're pronouncing it correctly. It's yeah. spelled S-A-R-T-R-E. Yeah, so, so lots of people say Sartre. Sartre. I was Sartre. 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 Um, yes. And so he believed that existence precedes essence. So you experience existence first. Uh, mm. So he's sort of... Um, pulling apart sort of Aristotle ideas of, of an essence existing beforehand. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So he believed that... Or um, coexisting. Or coexisting. At the same time. Exactly. Yeah, so. so he thinks that we get the choice. And so he mm. said that um, if you live in bad faith, it means that you are 
lying to yourselves to avoid pain uh, to do something because you feel like you have to. So this is the example he uses, the waiter who, who does his job, who walks very, is very um, wanting to serve, always mm. there every three seconds or something, that, that he is not, he, if he's not going out and like playing a jazz band or something, that he's maybe not living to his full potential. That's right. He is, he is almost, co- I, I think of it as a cop-out. He, he believes that everybody's kind of copping out. Like yeah. same with if you want to be in a marriage um, and you like I think he gives an example of two people that are married the uh, man wants to maybe have lots of sex and the woman wants to be ma- uh, appreciated for her mind or whatever but that basically you have two different kind of goals but you settle for each other because yeah. you think oh I might not find anybody else or she's pregnant or and whatever you make excuses later, you are then married under yeah. this unhappy relationship exactly. and then you also then have the fact of oh well we've been together for 10 years yeah. we should stay together yeah um, and that, that you've yeah. you've almost had you've put in the time or something or that, that, that he believes that this kind of um, wanting to be happy thinking that oh or that even just that you have to do certain things yeah. is living in, in bad faith um, and that's where Sartre actually connects to the aspect of Heidegger's Dasein structure and the yeah. care structure so instead of having facticity fallenness existentiality for Sartre he doesn't really separate facticity and fallenness it's just facticity and existentiality yeah um but yeah, you, you have these aspects of um, things which are almost chosen for you or chosen by you. And if you ignore the existentiality of the world, um, it, it's a problem because then you're ignoring your own potential yeah. and you're walking away from that. Definitely. And that's where all of these thinkers are talking about, Nietzsche, um, Heidegger, definitely, yeah. and, and Sartre. Yeah, and also the idea of being persuaded by other people. So I think mm. that Sartre is really against sort of, you know, enlisting into a war that maybe you don't agree with because mm. your parents want you or or just listening to all the voices that aren't your own or listening to media, what they tell you. It's all about mm. trying to be authentic, right? Being yeah. authentic as an individual. The difficult part is knowing when you're actually doing that. And I think that that's kind of the difficult part is how do you know whether you are living authentically? Yeah. Or how do you know whether you followed your own path or were you persuaded? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So you might think, oh, I wanted to do this, but was it just because of those opportunities led you to that? How much agency do you, do we really have in our own paths? Mm. I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that's enough for Ansar, because we'll talk a little bit about him later in relation to... Camus, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, um, I'll enter in Levinar now as well. Mm-hmm. So Levinar critiques um, uh, Hardiger. So as a Jewish thinker, um, Emmanuel Levinar uh, is how it's spelled. Levinar. Um, he says, "Well, Hardiger and Sard, uh, you're all focusing on the individual, your choices. Yeah. The reality is, we live in a world with other people around. You know, look at this society. We've got lots and lots of people around." So for Levinar, he takes the aspect of Dasein or being and says, well, yeah, okay, yeah, we all have being, we all have existence, we all exist in the world today. The problem is, how do we actually act with other people around? And for Levinar, it's a shaking of experience. So when I'm in the same space as another individual and we share the look of each other between the two of us, that moment shakes me. And that moment requires me to act, whether it be on a sameness or a difference, um, which is where Derrida comes into play after Levinas. Um, Levinas is saying you need to react. You yeah. need to be in this, this space and react yeah, to Yeah, no, definitely. Other. And I think Camus could be critiqued a little bit of... Um 
focusing on the individual as well, right? Mm. Um, we are we going to have to do a quick, quick commute because I think we've only got the room for another. 30 Half minutes. An, 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. We'll get to it. That's okay. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I think that makes a good point because I do think it's very individualistic. And I also think SART is maybe a bit um, – it's very easy to say, you know, don't fall into traps and do everything you want to do. But we live in a society where we have to work to make a living, we have to yeah. work hard, and sometimes you do have to make sacrifices to do things that you don't particularly want to do, right? Yeah. And so I think that's – I think well, so. that's, and that's a big thing about their difference of opinion yeah. between Sartre and, and Camus. Yeah. So perhaps we talk about that because Sartre is all about making, making value judgments and accepting sometimes that you have to do things that um, justify ends. There are means that justify ends. If it's for the causes he liked, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, enter Stalin. Yeah. So everyone knows USSR history. Um, we have the benefit of um, hindsight now. Um, Sartre was not on the best side of history. Um, and Camus made some good decisions, it uh, turns out. So Camus critiques um, revolutions. Now, he was a revolutionary. He served in the underground. As a working class person, he actually gave that time. And he worked against the fascist regimes. Um, now, uh, I should actually mention as well, there is a controversial aspect to his writing where he critiques the Islamic uprisings in places like Algeria and wants um, the French government to come in and stop what's going on and put in place a form of democracy. Um, he's writing in that in the context of needing... Um, or, or, or wanting freedom of individual expression and saw that there was a certain type of Islamic um, governments taking place that were um, trying to stop any sort of um, modern societies. So you can read him in, in a certain way, might label him as Islamophobic, but he's, he's not actually doing that. It's in the context of what's going on in Algeria. Now, um, he... D- Camus did not accept that there are all means are justifiable to ends. Um, he said that you have to be treating humans as humans, and um, found a problem with that, and critiques that in the rebel, in the rebel, um, and and his other works. Now, Sartre is re- running a newspaper at the time, and they had a friendship before this. This is before 1952. Uh, 1952 takes place and uh, Sartre gives freedom to his newspaper to critique Camus' work um, in saying that it was um, poorly researched, uh, didn't quite understand the philosophy and needed to get back to basics. Camus took great exception to that, and rightly so, uh, writes back publicly to Sartre um, and addresses the letter to Sartre in the newspaper, uh, attacking him, saying he has actually read it and you can't justify all means, and calling Sartre out for pushing the USSR. Now, Sartre knew what was going on with the USSR, knew what Stalin was doing, but thought they're so close to the communism or, um, and the socialist um, uh, system that they wanted. And Camus can't justify that. Can't do. Huh. No, 
know, we just got a little bit of static interference <laughs> coming from above. That happened in the other room. That yeah, you I know. Yeah. So um, the voice, so following us through. Anyway, so, yeah, attacks him. Now, um, Camus writes back, Sartre writes back to him um, and says... It's, the, the letters between each other are, are like brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, he says that oh, I had the quote. I think it was our our friendship was hard, but now it is over. <laughs> oh yeah, dear Camus, our friendship was not an easy one, but I shall miss it. Like that's the letter back to him publicly. Yeah. Is it brutal? Um, at Camus' funeral, Sartre actually reads a eulogy and does say mm-hmm. that he had stubborn humanism. And at 70, it took him 70, like 50 years after this. At 70, Sartre says, Camus was probably my last good friend. But they never actually reconciled. So there is this moment of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sartre actually reaching out, but it was too late. Yeah, it's but Sartre had a pretty difficult life, didn't he? Like, he was... Um, sorry, I'm just leaning a bit further away. I'll move forward again. Um, he wasn't very attractive. I mean, he's got, like, a lazy eye. He's quite short. He's yeah. got sticky... His ears stick out. And, you know, he... I think he was in love with a woman for a long time that, I don't know, unrequited love. I thought he has had a bit of a weird love affair with... Simone de Beauvoir. Um, maybe it was somebody else. I, he has an open relationship with Simone de Beauvoir. Oh, that's true. I just got the impression that aspects of his life were, were difficult. Yeah. Compared to Camus, who's, like, you know, very attractive, dresses like James Dean, mm. you know, good at football, mm. athletic, you know. He was the lead actor at some of the plays. That yeah, exactly. Uh, They're very different. But Camus on uh, working class. Sartre yeah. is upper class. Sartre is advocating for a revolutionary stance for individuals to take and being a working person. Um, yeah. And Camus is looking... And writing this way, um, trying to fit into the upper class. They're both wanting to be each other. Yeah. And they have a bit of a love-hate relationship too, right? They did. Yeah. Um, So what I find really interesting, going back to Camus, is that he wrote The Outsider the same year that he wrote Myth of Sisyphus. And I think I've already talked to you about this, but I found them quite different. So The Outsider is sort of um, about this sort of hero, uh, kind of anti-hero that uh, can't see the point of love or relationships and is like totally um, removed from the society that he finds himself in, totally alienated. And he basically, um, everything he does, he doesn't know why he does it. And and he ends up just randomly going, I think, into a plaza and just killing an Arab person. To feel feel what what it's like like to hold a gun. And that's quite a funny... When he's given the reason in trial, that's the reason he gives. He just wanted to know what it felt like. And so, like, a total... And so, apparently, he's kind of read as a rite of passage for a lot of, like, adolescent sort of young French people who also kind of maybe feel... Maybe they're not going to kill someone or whatever, but they kind of feel also out of place. Mm. And one of the famous lines in it is something like, "Today." It starts with, like, "'Today mother died.'" Or maybe yesterday. (laughs) I can't remember. Or something like that, you know. (laughs) Just, like, totally... um, removed from any sort of emotion about like yeah. you know and so what I find so interesting is this this is almost like a kind of you know being totally removed from society a stranger and then you know can kind of compare it to not just myth of Sisyphus but Camus life mm. as somebody that was very po- quite popular good at football you know uh, um, loved the sunshine loved women he writes a lot about the beauty of the naked form of women on the beach of women being able to express themselves and run along the shores and, and this was something that he, he wrote a lot about he wasn't somebody I don't think that was really detached from life he wasn't mm. sitting in you know in the dark or thinking you know or, you know being crippled by diseases like some of the older philosophers were 
were who were really confined. He was someone that was actually out and loving, really loving life and yeah, trying. But he felt you know, like so an outsider. So he's, he's mm. surrounded by all these intellectuals from upper class. He's referred to as Pied Noir. You know, he's yeah. referred to as Blackfoot. Um, he feels like an outsider. He yeah. does not have a father. You know, he does not have all of these object uh, aspects of an, mm-hmm. an easy upbringing. He struggled with that. Mm, but don't you feel like the story, the outsider, is almost like giving up? Whereas in Myth of Sisyphus, he's saying, "Don't give up, don't commit suicide, whether it's real or philosophical." Well, let's, let's get into Sisyphus. Yeah. Then. Okay, so um, I don't think everyone knows who Sisyphus is, what Sisyphus is, but it's a, a guy that tricks, tricks Hades into um, being trapped. So Sisyphus is about to die, right? And then Hades comes up. And says, "Okay, here's the chains. I'm going to take you down to Hades. Like this is this is what happens in you know ancient Greek." Uh, I thought he he was punished, but we're not sure he why. Had, he's yeah, punished after. So oh, okay. okay, so what he does, he says to Hades, "Well, um, how do you know that the chains work?" And Hades says, "Well, I don't know." And then Sisyphus says, "Well, why don't you try the chains on yourself?" So he ties himself. Hades ties himself up in the chains, um, and Sisyphus locks him in a cupboard, and then there's no more death. Um, and because there is no more death, people are dying on the battlefield, but they're not actually dying. They're just lying there dead, but not dead. You know, they can't, they're, they're not actually going to the underworld. Um, Sisyphus is then punished, and he's punished by given a boulder, and every day he has to roll that boulder up a hill, mm-hmm. and the boulder rolls down again. Yep. And he does the same thing every single day. Mm. And it's sort of similar to Tantalus is also, I think he's one of the other persons when, um, is it, who goes down to hell and sees everybody in one of the Greek myths? Is it, um, is it Apollo? Somebody goes down to hell and sees all these characters again. He sees Sisyphus and then he sees Tantalus as well. So Tantalus is the other, um, I think he um, insulted um, Hera or something. Yeah. And basically he's the, uh, always wanting to drink and always wanting to eat but can't. So he's got the grapes dangling over his head that he can't oh, quite yes. eat and, he, and he's got water below that he can't. And every time the water, you know, he can't quite reach either. And so yeah. he's constantly thirsty or hungry. So he also is living this kind of perpetual sort yeah, of torture, um, torture. and yeah. s- whereas you know Sisyphus is pushing the boulder up is rolling back down yeah so it's an action the difference between the two is that Tantalus is is being taunted with yeah. these things whereas Sisyphus is doing an action and requiring to do an endless action every single day for his existence mm. he will never but it's die it's also a punishment and that's the yeah. punishment right yeah. so Camus turns to that and engages with that aspect of being in the world um, and if we don't have the promise of an afterlife, what can we then do? And the answer for Camus is you can do only one thing, which is commit suicide. Right? But the suicide, he has a nuanced understanding of this, and there's two aspects to suicide. There's physical suicide and philosophical suicide. Um, the problem, so do you, do you want to explain? What, what is the problem with Sisyphus? So the problem, you mean in life, yes. the, the rock The rock is re- representing for us the idea that we're kind of going through life. And this is the existential crisis that everybody's talking mm. about, is that we live in a world, in a society where we're never going to be fulfilled, we're never necessarily going to go to heaven, pretty much perpetual, not suffering, but perpetual challenges and difficulties mm. with no real reward. Activity for activity's sake. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And monotonous and, and you know, we, we kind of promise these ideas of these things, you know, and it's all a bit of a myth. And, and so, so for 
Camus engages with Sisyphus as, and this boulder is representing us kind of also, you know, this endless toil, this yeah. endless But work. it's the dread of the toil. Yeah. So that's the actual problem. So yeah. the nuanced different uh, understanding is here that it's not actually the actions which you're trying to escape. It's the dread of doing that action forever. Yeah. That dread. Now, to escape that dread, you can do two things. You can commit suicide or you can commit philosophical suicide. Committing suicide doesn't answer the problem. The problem is still there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, committing philosophical suicide is worse. And philosophical suicide for him is thinking that um, there is some hope after I do this in another potential realm mm. or another potential world. So taking that aspect of Heidegger's and Sartre's, thinking of um, the um, existentiality and you know, the possibilities of where you can move to in life um, and imagining what your possibility can be after you do this toil, that's useless for community. Mm. But that's also what Sartre was critiquing as well, the idea that if, oh, if I just got this job promotion, if I just, you know, if I just do this, then maybe it'll get better, right? Yeah. That's sort of also what Sartre was critiquing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you should do things in the world and just be happy and then you can make these choices and that's the way it is. Mm. So Camus was saying that there's no real solution. No. No, okay. there is no solution. So there's not, like, even if you're the best individual and you make all the best choices mm. and you're true to yourself, like, yeah. um, you know, and being in time and being in nothingness, if you're yeah. being in both time yeah. and nothingness, he's saying that you still, it still won't work. It's everyone, still not the answer. Everyone shit shaves and showers. Basically, everyone yeah. has to go through life and have these troubles, no matter who they are. Um, but that's okay. Yeah. So for Camus, the answer is then... We have to imagine Sisyphus not as being in dread, not unhappy in this experience, yep. but joyfully accepting the absurdity yep. of the world. And, and not, that's why and he's not, an absurdist. And not necessarily... So he's saying not to just forget that it's there. It's also about no. recognising that, that life is suffering in a way yep. and that life is problems and life is this. Mm. But what, like, what practically does that look like? This is the part that I find difficult. Like, I get the problem. Hmm. And I get the solution, but well, how would you describe that being different than just being optimistic and just going, oh, life shit, but, you know, you have to do it anyway, or being kind of pragmatic? What is the difference between Camus' idea and just being pragmatic about life? Well, it's, it's being happy in that moment of the oddness of that experience. And I think Taoism actually helps with this. So yeah. if you look at Taoism, Confucianism... Uh, and Buddhism, and the three vinegar tasters, right? So you've got the three, a, a pot of vinegar. Mm -hmm. And the story is in, in China, the, the three of them tasting it. So uh, Confucius tastes it and goes, ah, it's bitter. We need some rules to deal with this, yeah? So that's a pragmatic approach. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we just need to pragmatically um, look at the aspects of how to use vinegar and how to balance that in your diet. And then we can accept that there is this thing called vinegar yep. um, and then move forward. Buddha says, oh, this is, um, well, actually, no. So um, Confucius says it's, it's sour, it's yeah. sourness, yeah? Um, uh, Buddha says it's bitter because it is representing the bitterness of the world and suffering of the world. And real suffering is actually wants and desires in this world. The, the, the want and desire for me to taste something is suffering in itself. Yeah. Taoism um, and uh, Lao Tzu says... <laughs> Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, he says be happy with tasting it. He tastes the vinegar and goes ah oh, it's sweet. Now the reason why it's sweet for him is not because it tastes sweet 
but he's just happy in that moment. That this is a bitter taste. But isn't that just being delusional? Like, isn't that what you're describing is just being, like, almost, like, blissfully, delusionally happy? Like, saying, like, I love pushing the boulder up. It's a joyful expression, and that's how you beat the boulder. But isn't that just by being, like, uh, what's the word, like, unfoundly optimistic? Um, Yes and no. I think that you can be unfoundly optimistic about certain experiences in life, absolutely. But this is an acceptance of your life itself. So it's kind of like mind over matter, like... It's not... No, because you, st- you don't stop trying for Camus. You still have to try and do these things. You still have the existentiality and you still have the facticities. But you're happy life. about having to try. Yeah, yeah. Your <laughs> happiness is in the toil and that experience. So it'd be like, okay, so you know you have to clean your room mm. and you don't want to clean your room, mm. and you know. But instead of being like feeling like the room's making you clean it and that you're a trap, you, you're going... Actually, I'm going to choose. Is it all about like yeah. kind of choosing to do the yeah. room and enjoy cleaning? And knowing it. that the choice is yours. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, do you feel like that? I try to. <laughs> you I still try. get to clean the room. You're still just like, fuck, I have to clean my room. I don't want it. Yeah. So yeah. it's not about owning your existence and owning your choices. No. No? No. no. It's about being happy with the choices that you've made um, and doing those things. Hmm. So... You know, I mumbled about and grumbled about having to write the report on on, yeah. on Tuesday, uh, on Saturday night. Um, was it Sunday night? Whenever it was. And then I was really tired Sunday night. And I'm thinking, God, you know, all I want to do is lie down on a lounge and play Golf Story on my <laughs> Switch, which is quite a cute game. It's about you're a little golfer and, like, you're walking around, you play golf, but yeah. it's a role-playing game. Anyway, that's all I wanted to do, really. And I thought in that moment that's all I wanted to do. And then I got an email saying that, actually, you've got this meeting coming up on Tuesday and it's about this coursework and I had to do this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, I could sit here and hate it or I could joyfully go through that. Mm-hmm. And I wrote something and I'm proud of it. Yeah. I think it's awesome. Um, Umberto, Umbi, where, uh, he's going to be possibly coming to a meeting and I'm proud that I've emailed this out and included him in it and shown him, hey, this is what I would like done for my department at university, even though I was tired at that moment. Mm. Now, I think there's two, there was a couple of choices I could have made through that moment and I try and do that with every aspect of my life. I don't need religion for that, you know, and I don't need to do it for my family. Mm-hmm. So doing it for yourself, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I just don't know whether... And I I try and put the others first. And that's why I like customer service with that, with my shop. Mm -hmm. Um, I love... Like, I got some some cards, Pokemon cards, from Queensland recently for a couple of people. Um, I met the sellers at a marketplace in... Um, Queensland and it was by chance I did that at the Donkey Kong thing um, and then I got a con- contact phone number of a seller up there and then I connected to collectors down here with that seller worked that out, they they drove the cards down on, on Monday none of this actually benefits me mm-hmm. right, the monetary thing did not benefit me, really mm-hmm. like at the time and effort that I actually put into it, it's probably more than what I needed to do. Now, I know nothing about the two people that got these cards. Nothing at all. Only their names. That's it. Mm-hmm. don't know what households they're from. But I took a joy in what they did. and, and uh, uh, Sorry, and what they achieved. So it's almost from, like service. You enjoy the service. Yeah. 
So where Camus differs from Sartre is Sartre is saying that doing those motions and being a waiter is, um, a, you know, is it's a you, shackles. What do you call it? Bad faith, right? Yes. So yeah. you're doing your bad faith. Whereas um, Camus looks at that and says, if he's doing it happily and kind of choosing and going, mm. oh, you know, I don't really want to wait the table, but taking pride in doing the work. Yes. He's almost saying that that's a good thing yes. instead. Yes. Yes. So that's the sort of the, the, the nuance that's of the, the difference. They're both yeah. looking at the problem, and whereas Sat maybe criticizes. To, kind of going through the motions doing jobs yeah. Camus says you need to own it and be happy when yeah. you do it and how presumptuous really of Sartre to look at that waiter and think he must be happy unhappy in yeah. that experience he must think when he gets home that oh well I've got a good job and I'm comfortable in this space and yeah. that's where I have to and Camus calling him out going well what the fuck do you know about that person's life but it's Sartre saying though that maybe if he had a, the waiter has a secret dream to be a drummer but keeps thinking oh, I could never be a drummer and that, that that's wrong or does he think even just doing a job like that meaning this meaning uh, like that kind of job is bad or is it more if you're just not living up to I your don't think potential? Sartre can imagine someone being a waiter and happy really yeah but this is this is I can see this fitting into your sort of your thesis and more into that kind of um, perpetual flow state and yep. service and and that Buddhist idea of of, of um, or toiling a field or doing those small little jobs and taking a lot of joy in it, even if it's meaningless, even if it's monotonous, mm. right? It's kind yeah. of like... Why, you know, stand at the nibble of a game <laughs> yeah, and play that for uh, well, 30-something hours. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, just keep doing it, whereas there's actually arguably better games out there. Yeah, but I, I can see also where it's coming from as well because I also think just working and, you know, it's also very... I think, like, oh, the common folk love... You know, it's this mm. kind of idea also of maybe being like, oh, they really enjoy toiling the field. They get so much joy out of it, but also allowing people to have the potential to go, well, I, if I hate that, to also leave and not just get kind of stuck in positions that mm. they don't like as well. I can see both. Yeah, but, but Camus doesn't say that you should just be happy with your lot in life and your yeah. facticities, and that's all it is. Like, the guy left a number of jobs. He travelled around. Yeah. He's tried to change the world. He's doing that. He's still having the viva activa, you know, the active life. But he's not um, saying really in Mythicists to kind of like remove your shackles and ex- try and change the world, is he? He's sort of, I think he's saying the opposite, trying to just be happy with your lot. It's, it's being happy with what you need to do, but you don't need to do anything. So then they're kind of it's similar in that way, because start saying the same, right? Yes. You don't need to do you think but it's just about if you're deciding that that's what you do need to do yes, those jobs then be happy with that choice yeah um and be happy with that yeah existence. i think i get it a little bit there's aspects of it i still don't fully understand mm. i guess that how it can be both how you can be kind of living your full potential and not doing anything that you have to that's boring if you don't want to but also being happy with doing the boring things like isn't Camus kind of saying like where is the room in Camus to be, like, removing your shackles and not buying into society and going to do your own thing? Is there room in Sisyphus for that? No, it's more of Nietzsche, you know, Z- oh, thus guess. spoke the Zarathustra. Um, and both um, Camus and Sartre are reacting to that. You yeah. know, you should be um, like the child. So the three stages for, um, uh, for, for Nietzsche is um, you start off 
you know, as meek, and then you're the roar of the lion, and you say no, and then finally you're like a child, and you can experience the world and and, and how you are. So they are reacting to that experience of trying to be the best that you possibly can be. Um, however, there are the realities of the world. Even if you are the child and you're accepting that anything is the world is your oyster. You still have to do monotonous things. Yeah, everyone true. needs to do that, and I think they're realists in that regard. Yeah. Um, labeling the sorry, labeling them though as um, you know unhopeful or um, there's, there's lots of mislabeling I think of Camus and misreadings of what he actually stands for mm. and what absurdism actually is. And I find it quite hopeful. Yeah. I don't know. Did you find the same thing, or did you think it was uh, you know? I like both. I think both are important. I think Sartre's idea of, of not falling into traps and not thinking if I just do X, things will get better, or if I just, if even though I've got issues now, maybe in what I'm doing, uh, you know, feeling like you're trapped or that you have to do. Because I do think a lot of people do that. They'll spend every day complaining about having to go to work and they just won't quit. You know what I mean? It's mm. like if you're every day going to go and, like, why don't you just fucking quit? And, and they can make up, you can make up a hundred excuses. Yeah. And I get it. Like, I get the pragmatic you need to earn money and stuff like that. But I like such as idea of just being like, hang on, if you're going to complain every day, just bloody quit. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think that there's a lot of w- worth in that. But I also like Camus going, hang on, the waiter can be getting just as much fulfillment for fucking washing the dishes as he would be playing in a jazz band in the evening. Don't try and look at that and think it's a shit lifestyle. Yeah. He can do whatever he wants because he's doing it happily. And yeah. so I like both. And I think they complement each other quite nicely. Yeah. Because I think it's all important also not to be trapped and think, I have to be a waiter and living and toiling and, and, and kind of thinking and forcing yourself to be happy is something that you just don't really like. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I think both are really important. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think, where I'm leaving. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. That's good. Um... Oh, and I also wanted to just quickly talk about Montaigne because he just cracked me up. What a cool guy. So Camus was really... Montaigne was Camus, one of Camus' kind of favourite philosophers. So he was born in 1533 in France. And he basically was in... uh, He was an academic and just hated academia. And so all his essays that he writes, he basically calls people blockheads and uh, all this sort of stuff and just hated the kind of real kind of hoity-toity. And yeah, all his work's really funny um, and... He, so yeah, he, one of his quotes is there's thousands of little women in their villages who have lived greater lives than Cicero. So he believed that basically that just because you weren't a philosopher, you, you didn't mean that you weren't living those philosophers' ideals. Yes. And so he saw a lot of joy in just the women going about their work and their humble kind of living. And so I thought that was really cool. And one of the stories he tells is that he has a friend, um, who is impotent and is really upset about this because he's in love with a woman and can't um, basically get an erection. And sort of um, Montaigne... Impotent. Impotent, yeah, Yeah. sorry. Um, And so he basically says to him, why do we have all these kind of prejudices against it? Why don't you just accept it and maybe tell her beforehand and things will be different. And so he just makes it not an issue. So next time Mm. he goes to have sex, he's like, sorry, I've got a bit of an issue. Like, I can't get it up. And, And basically just takes all the pressure out and it's fine. And so Montaigne's kind of saying, like, we just need to be okay with all this sort of stuff and not mm. get so wrapped up and that intellect's quite limited um, and he, he says something else like that he doesn't like reading books for scholarly stuff he likes mm. to just read for fun and he said that he found Plato boring and so like, this, like, <laughs> yeah. he's like I don't even care if I want to learn like at what cost I just want to enjoy myself so I think um, Camus found in him probably a really refreshing look at sort of um, 
more uh, refreshing look at philosophy around that time of just being like trying to enjoy life and and not thinking that all of our wisdom can be found in books or smart people mm. or philosophers even. And mm. I think that's I liked really like Montaigne's ideas as well. Me too. Yeah, what a cutie. Mm. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, I think next week we're going to do one of two. What do you want to rate? Oh yeah, we're gonna rate Myth of Sisyphus yeah, or Camus. Oh, I can't. Well, so I'd rate Camus differently to Myth of Sisyphus. Oh, okay. If I rem- if I just as him as an idea and some of the ideas we talked about, I really as like as a thinker. Okay. As a thinker. So we're gonna rate a thinker. Yeah. Out of how many boulders would you give a thinker? <laughs> I would give him eight out of ten boulders. Eight out of ten boulders. Yeah, I and, liked. Okay. Camus. All right. I would give him. I can't rate You love him. Yeah, I do love him. Yeah, you don't I even need to, to ask. Him a 10 out of 10 but I didn't like Mythos Sisyphus very much. Mm. But mostly because I don't really like reading philosophical texts. Yeah. I'm more Montaigne. I don't like reading for <laughs> all those kind of like <laughs> yeah. non-fiction ideas. I'd rather listen to about it or, or uh, visualise it mm. or something like that. I like the analogies that Sisyphus brings to yeah. philosophical work. I find um, Heidegger should get to his point. <laughs> faster sometimes Um, and I don't like Heidegger as a thinker or a person really I have problems with that I'm more of a Levinard type of person than Derrida Um, and I think that uh, Camus fits in really well with both of those Um, so yeah he is one of my favourite philosophers along with Derrida Um, but they're difficult to read I give you that I like the analogy of the mythicists I Mm. just didn't like the text particularly much. I just found it really dense, a lot of name dropping without explaining it very well and just really difficult to read. But I really like the ideas and I like just engaging with existentialism in general. I thought that was really, I never really looked at it before. And to just look at different thinkers and and some of the problems because it's true that everyone feels that existential shitty life all the time Mm. and to just have some ideas of what people are doing to deal with it. And I actually really like Sartre's stuff. I actually Mm. thought he had some refreshing things to say. I thought maybe a bit naive in parts. Yeah. Um, But I like his little googly eye. (laughs) (laughs) He seems like he was trying and like... And he was passionate. And this is what I like about Camus and Sartre. Even if they maybe had problems, like Sartre has some issues and maybe mm-hmm. he was on the wrong side of history, he really practiced what he thought. Yeah, he wasn't totally. just saying it, writing it down, and then going, doing the opposite. Yeah. He was living every and single... And de, de Beauvoir as well, making up the trinity yeah. of those three thinkers after the war. Um, de Beauvoir says that it was up to those guys to actually write the philosophy of post-war Europe. Yeah. It fell on them. And they tried as best as they could yeah. to argue what they saw was the right way. Exactly. And, yeah, you can't fault them for that, really. Yeah, no. So I think mm. Myth of Sisyphus, out of 10 as a f- work, if someone that's never read any other Camus works or many philosophical works, I'd probably give it a 5 out of 10, mm. just because I couldn't really get through it. But it's not really his fault necessarily to me. No, yeah, it's, <laughs> a, it's a different type of work. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's not something to be read on its own, like you, you say. But I, I liked how you did the research in regard to, you know, tracking through history and, and building some content context yeah. um, and I think that that's the right way to approach philosophy yeah well I tried to engage it in a different way rather yeah. than trying to keep trying to go through a text that I wasn't really connecting yeah, yeah, it's, with it's how I teach my students it's, yeah. I, it's the way to do it um, yeah. otherwise you're just sitting there listening to a you know someone's thoughts um, 
in um, existence without anything else around them. That's yeah. a bit odd. You know, everyone has a makeup of their well, I am a being in time. And yes, so you I need are to a being in time, not a being in nothingness. <laughs> yes. But you have the choice of nothingness. That's the choice true. is yours. Um, no, so I thought it was fun. I actually enjoyed it more than I would. Once I kind of was, guess, gave up on mythicism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think right. next week we're going to maybe look at um, a short story um, about AI and cats. I can't remember the title, but we'll post it on. Yeah. And we're going to end with something from Montaigne from Montaigne oh yeah 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 because she's awesome I like Montaigne and she should win the hottest 100 but people oh not Montaigne the philosopher no no Montaigne the artist the amazing Mm. Montaigne so yes enjoy Montaigne (laughs) and we'll see you next week bye bye bye